Hi, and welcome to Mavericks Radio. I'm your host, Christian Roy, and this is a place to be to become your best self, do work you love, and live life on your terms. On this podcast, we speak to Mavericks who inspire us, people who play to their strengths, follow the heart, and do their best to create positive impact. We aim to get the insight and wisdom from their story to give you the clarity, courage, and confidence to carve your own path through life. This week, we speak to a really close friend of ours, Mr. Josh Connolly. Josh is both a coach and a mentor, but he's also a spokesperson for the National Association for Children of Alcoholics. His personal story is one of the most moving I've ever heard, and he shares so much of his learning and wisdom with us today. He talks about his take on mindfulness. It's taking two minutes to step aside from it, and instead of being, I don't want to feel stressed, I can't feel stressed, I shouldn't be feeling stressed, you literally have a mindset shift where you say, okay, look, I'm feeling stressed now. He also tells us what legacy means to him and what he wants to create. I want my grandchildren and my great-grandchildren to have a picture of me on the wall uh, and, you know, and my kids say that I was a good man, mm. you know, and mm. that I would be remembered for somebody who took everything that's happened to me, um, took everything that I've been through and tried to influence the world in a positive way. Josh, rather than me telling people what you do, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, so as you said, I I work as a coach um, and as a mentor, so I work quite closely on a personal level with people and then, um, you know, as a mentor and then as a coach in the the professional sense. Uh, And I do a lot of mental health training in the workplace, um, just trying to, you know, focus my learnings and core beliefs into um, bringing them into the workplace to make people go from, you know, just surviving to thriving in terms of Mm -hmm. their well-being. And then, as you said, uh, I do a lot of public speaking. So I travel a lot of the country um, and I'm fortunate enough to speak to a lot of people of a range of ages about my experience, really. Brilliant, brilliant. And you said there about your experience and I know this is really core to a lot of what you do. So tell us a bit about your journey because it's a really rich one and there's a lot of uh, a lot of learnings in there for a lot of people, I think. Yeah, okay. So so when I got to, I was 25 actually when I realised uh, that I'd had some real, real problems in my life. I had had difficulties and issues with my relationship with alcohol and my relationship um, with, with drugs as well. Mm. And uh, at the age of 25, I decided that I'd, I wanted to stop all that. And I, and I was about a year into stopping all that. Um, and that's when I walked into the charity um, COA, which is National Association for Children of Alcoholics. Right, right, right. Okay, and so when I walked into that charity, uh, I did that because I wanted to help, I wanted to volunteer, but I never realized um, I would associate with them in any way. I didn't believe that I'd had a difficult childhood. And in fact, I would have told you that I'd had a decent childhood, that my dad drank a little bit and died when I was young, but that everybody has problems and, you know, we all uh, have to find ways to overcome that. But mm-hmm. I I trained to become a, a helpline counsellor with the charity. And within the first hour of the first training session, I gained a complete understanding of everything that I'd ever suffered from all my life, really. Wow. Um, and that was the impact of, of my dad's drinking and his addiction to alcohol. Mm. Mm. And so that opened up a, a whole new journey for me, really, and put me on a new path or right. or, or even uh, um, a collection of new paths. <laughs> um, and, uh, it, you know, it, it gave me the opportunity to feel some validation for the ways that I'd felt all my life. And I realized that validation was what was missing. I always knew the ways that I felt. I knew I felt scared and frightened of the world. And, in, you know, my world felt like a very small place. And, you know, I had a lot of self-loathing and felt a lot of shame all the time. Um, wow. But I'd never had that validated, you know. I'd often yeah, yeah, been told yeah. that 
perhaps I shouldn't feel like it or that I needed to toughen up and, and I tried that but it hadn't really worked and you know I got the opportunity to look at my back at my childhood and really it's quite shocking that at 25 years old I, I believed that I'd lived a decent childhood because the reality was that my you know my father was a, a chaotic influence on my life I, I don't remember him ever being sober and so well I, while I was growing up from a very young age two three four five years old trying to gain an understanding of the world I now recognize that you know the world that I was introduced to was small it was frightening mm, um, mm. and so it was no wonder that that was the perception that I went out into the world with right. as I grew up yeah, of course. As I went into my teenage years, things really, really did start to get more and more difficult for me mm. um, because that's when my mental health began to suffer. Uh, originally, I, you know, I saw the way my mum felt as a result of my dad's drinking and his behaviour and the feelings that came with it. And I found my place in the world by making her happy. Yeah, um, yeah which meant I was very likable and it meant I made lots of friends and it meant that the teachers at my, my primary school thought that I was a real, you know, nice lad and had so much to give and everything was all really, really positive in my life. But when it's your whole character, yeah, uh, not only is it tiring, but the times when people around you aren't happy, it, it crippled me. I, I couldn't cope with it. Uh, so by the time I was 12, 13, uh, it was, you know, the pain had become too much to bear and I feel like I... I was unable to be anywhere near my authentic self because my my truth, my reality was too painful to bear. So I was already right. in a in a in a notion of escape. Um, and when I say escape, I mean uh, sometimes I mean literally running from the ways that I felt, and mm -hmm. other times I mean creating characters that weren't me, um, but that helped me survive in what was a frightening world for me. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I didn't know it at the time, but I suffered terribly from anxiety. I suffered terribly from feelings of shame. Um, and when I say feelings of shame, I mean that I had a deep-rooted idea that there was something wrong with me, that I was inherently bad. Right, um, right. And all I had in my life was not wanting to be like my dad, while children aspired to be policemen and firemen and doctors and all that kind of stuff. I just desperately didn't want to have a problem with alcohol like my dad. And I'd vowed never to drink, vowed never to drink, never to touch drugs, I was never gonna smoke. Um, however, when I was 12, I was introduced to, to drugs initially for the first mm -hmm. time. Um, and there's lots of reasons that we feel like people use drink and drugs and, you know, look, for me, the reality was, I saw the people using them and it looked like it worked. And the truth was, it was. Right. When I was 12, 13 years old, it worked. It gave me the relief I craved. Nobody really was offering me any healthy ways of um, escaping the ways that I feel or managing my emotions. And when I drank and used drugs, it gave me the escape that I craved. And mm. despite the, the journey that it then took me on, uh, you know, I often say that it saved my life. So I, re I really get at 12 years old, it was kind of effective, right? It was, it was doing what you needed it to do. Yeah, it gave me that escape that I craved and needed mm. in some ways. And, you know, I do say that in a lot of ways, alcohol and drugs kind of kind of saved my life at that point mm. um, because it offered me the relief that I needed from the ways that I felt. Um, and it worked. It, it really did work. Um, it get, You know, it, it saved my life, but then it was like it gave me, gave me a life and then slowly, inch by inch and painfully and over a long period of time, gradually took it back from me 
Right. And I say gradually, to be honest with you, in, in life terms, it very quickly took my life away from me. Because of that, you know, because of the way that I started to drink and the way that I did and the ways that I felt, I lacked hope in my life. And, and people, talk, people talk about hope a lot and we hear people talking about hope and the need for hope in your life. But when, when I talk about losing hope or having no hope, it was never having the idea that life could be any different for me. Right. Right, yeah. right. Yeah. So I already knew by then that the ways that I was fi- that the ways that I felt weighed me down, and mm. I, and the ways that I felt in my internal world prevented me from doing anything. And so the idea of a better life or getting somewhere else in my life was something that I didn't have. Mm. Mm. And so what that meant is, despite I was I was talented at football um, and talented at drama, um, very talented at drama. My drama teacher wanted me to really pursue it and I I could never believe that and I could never Mm. see myself doing that because the idea that anything better existed for me wasn't there and when so so there's no hope and and when there's no hope it meant that I was you know I lived a chaotic life myself yeah Uh, yeah I was drawn to chaos you know because I often felt numb my body my mind almost had to shut down to protect itself to, Mm. to, to, to protect itself from what happened to me you know it was very traumatic when I was younger I I saw my dad take his own life when I was nine years old. Can I only imagine the impact? Yeah. Um, but after my dad died, when, when, when I was nine years old, when I saw him, I saw him overdose and I was stuck in his flat with him for a period of time. Oh, my God. And it was, it was quite a period of time, wasn't it? Yeah, I don't know how, to, how long it was. Um, but we'd been out that day. My dad was was violently drunk. We were at a, uh, a country park, and there were hundreds of families there. A lot of people. It was a heat wave, so it was really hot, really warm, and so there were loads of families there. And it was the middle of the day, and my dad was walking along with a big cider bowl, and and he was urinating. And uh, I don't mean wetting himself. I mean he was walking along, um, you know, acting out of his mind, mm. urinating. And and as a child at nine years old, I walked in, I walked 10 yards in front of him and I felt really guilty that I did that because I intuitively knew at that young age that I knew that what my dad was doing was an expression of something way deeper. I saw his pain, you know, yeah, um, yeah. I, and that's been something that's, you know, true in all my life. I see people's pain and I saw my dad's pain and I felt guilty at nine years old that I couldn't walk next to him in, in, in like an act of defiance, yeah? But I also, th- th- these were the moments when the real shame came on me. Mm. And, and it's important to note that I say shame, not ashamed. Yeah, yeah. I didn't feel ashamed of my dad, you know, he was my hero, he was my dad. and. I, I intuitively knew that he was struggling and that this was a outward symptom of something much, much deeper. Yeah. So I didn't feel ashamed. Shame says I am bad. Yeah. yeah. And I felt like there was something wrong with me. And that stayed with me. And after my dad died, we, we never spoke about him again. It was too traumatic. Um, mm-hmm. And there was a lot of not wanting to rock the boat, you know, um, despite the the, the the bad things that I saw. And, and that time, you know, when we went back to the flat that day, my dad, I said to my dad, I said, you're taking a lot of them tablets. And he was on drugs by then as well. And so he was taking a lot of drugs. And I remember thinking, you, 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 he's gonna die. You're gonna die. And you know, he had a seizure and I, and yeah. I was stuck in the flat. Wow. And I had to wait for, you. my first thought as nine years old was, I can't ring an ambulance because then my mum will know that I've seen this. And at nine years old, I wanted to protect her. Wow. So I made the decision not to call an ambulance, but to wait until my mum phoned. And when she phoned, I said, dad's just drunk, pick us up out the front because he's acting crazy. Pick us up out the front and uh, bring us home. Right. And she must have heard the fear in my voice because she sent my nan, but she picked us up out the front and we went home. 
me and my younger brother. And uh, I found out two days later that he was dead. They died. Wow. Um, wow. Wow. That's just. Yeah. So it's a tra- you know it's a traumatic. It's traumatic. It doesn't begin to describe it. Really, yeah. Does it? Yeah. But in their moments, I feel like my mind had to shut down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and, and detach from, from how I felt. Right. Which meant that I, you know, never made any meaningful bonds. I never created any meaningful relationships because yeah. I wasn't connected to who I was. You know, right. um, I was always uh, wearing a mask throughout my entire life. Um, yeah. But, it, but, but, but because of that detachment, you know, I was often left with a feeling of being numb. Yep. Um, So I was drawn to chaos to make me feel alive. Right, 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 right. Um, And and some kind of connection as well, I would guess. Yeah, yeah. And um, alcohol and drugs made me feel connected to the world. Yeah. Certainly in the beginning. I mean, the effects for me deteriorated and worked less and less and less. And I guess in the end, that's why I stopped because I still felt completely disconnected and in pain in the end, even when I was, you know, using drink and drugs. So... Uh, my first child was born when I was 18. Uh, by then, I, I'd entered into a, a toxic relationship. Um, my addiction was drinking drugs, and not to tell her story, but my my ex-wife's addiction was trying to control that and trying to yeah. stop that, you know, something that I obviously pulled her into. Very codependent. Very codependent relationship, yeah, heavily codependent. Um, and at 18 years old, I'd become my dad. You know? Wow, that's quite an admission, isn't it? Yeah, I mean. to become everything I didn't want to be. I, you know, I would disappear. I would go and live in bed sits, and then couldn't cope. So then I'd go home, and then I'd drink at home and not go out, and just yeah. do it all at home. And then, you know, when you're in that, um, when the door's shut, it's your family that get the worst of you. Yeah, that's yeah. the reality. Absolutely. Um, that is the that's the wholesome reality. Is that you know when I was 18 and my daughter was born. I, I, we got a house, I got a job, um, a, you know, a, a decent job for where I was at in my life, which was, it was in a factory. It paid well enough for us to get a mortgage. Mm-hmm. So on the outside, I was doing all right. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. In fact, people were telling me how inspiring I was and how well I'd done and how, you know, the fact that I had got myself into a place where my, I was having a child at 18, but I'd stepped up to the plate and I'd done what I was supposed to do. But behind that, I was deteriorating, you know, getting worse and worse and worse. Yeah, yeah, Um, yeah. And we went on to have four children. Wow. um, In in a very codependent, toxic, um, difficult environment. And I started to pass on my traumas that that I'd received from my dad. Uh, I started to pass them on to my children. Which is kind of probably one of the worst bits of news that a parent can have about their impact on their kids, right? Absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, I wasn't one of these people who didn't know what I was doing. Okay, I used I used denial as a way to cope, and tried to dress it up as something different. But when I was in bed at night on my own, mm. staring at the ceiling, I knew the pain I was causing because I'd been there. Yeah. So I knew what I was doing. I just didn't know why. I had no idea why. Yeah. I had no idea how to stop it. All the crazy stuff I did when I was drinking, and I woke up in police cells, and I woke up in hospitals, and I woke up in bushes, and I woke up in places I didn't want to be, and all that stuff. I could just about cling on to life doing that. I could just about cope, right? Yeah. What I couldn't do was normal living. What I couldn't do was show up, make meaningful relationships, go to work, come home, be a dad, be a husband. Um, I, I, I had no idea how to do it. Yeah. So if you were to like just bottom line it for us, 
how bad did it get in your journey? When I was 24, when I decided to stop drinking, I was 17,000 pound in debt, living on a fold out bed at my mum's house and I was nine and a half stone, um, wow. which is five stone lighter than what I am now. Wow. And I'm not heavy now. No, I was going to say, you, 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 you're a, you know, you're a strapping yeah. specimen of a lad. You yeah, know, so, so I was in a bad way. Um, but here's the reality. It got worse. The worst point was nine months after I stopped drinking and using any drugs whatsoever. Right, okay. Yeah, so I stopped, made the decision to stop, found the place where I could stop. Um, and uh, I got set up in my, my, my own place in a two-bedroom house. Everyone's telling me how well I'm doing again, yeah? Yeah. I thought it doesn't get any worse than where I was. I hated myself and nobody wanted to know me, yeah? Mm -hmm. Nine months sober, people were back in my life. People were telling me how well I was doing, what an inspiration I was, and I still hated myself. So, so wow. now I'm a fraud. Right. right, which is a whole other layer on top, right? Which is, yeah, which is, which is hating got, yourself, yeah, yeah, but it's another layer because now I'm a fraud. Well, and you've got, and you've got nothing to then numb that out, right? Exactly. And so I was lost. My anxiety was on me. I was left with all these feelings and all these emotions and what, you know, and ultimately I now know that alcohol and drugs was not my problem. It was an attempt at a solution for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so I was left with myself and nine months, nine months without anything mind altering in my body. Um, I, I looked around at where I was and, and, and the, the, the idea of not wanting to be here anymore was no longer just an idea of not wanting to be here anymore, but it was a, a record. I, I recognized or I thought I recognized that I didn't want to taint the people I loved anymore Got with it. my darkness. Yeah. You know, when we, when my dad died, we went to see him in the coffin. And when you've grown up in that environment as a family, it's difficult. And um, I remember my mum saying, this might be the best thing for everybody. There's a line to be drawn in the sand here. Your dad no longer has any more pain to deal with. Mm -hmm. And he mm -hmm. doesn't bring any more pain to the people's lives that he loves. And that sounds uh, ridiculous and it might sound like a bad thing to say, but it made absolute sense in the moment and, and it felt right. So here I am now at 24, believing I'm my dad. I can't blame it on drink anymore because I no longer drink. Um, and I felt like I, I I was the master of the person that could draw a line in the sand now, yeah? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I could draw the line in the sand um, and I made the decision to take my own life. And it felt like the most noble and selfless thing I could do in that moment. Wow. Um, and I made the decision. I, I was gonna go and see my children once more. Luckily, because I was going to see them once more this weekend, I went into it for the first time with, because I knew I was going to die and I knew mm -hmm. I was going to die. Past now didn't matter. It was irrelevant. And I was no longer scared of a future because it didn't exist. And in that weekend, for the first time, when my children, I'd always known intellectually how much I loved my children, but I'd never felt it. And for the first time when my daughter cuddled me, I was present enough in my body. And I remember thinking, I was blown away by it. And, and, and in the most... The, the most particular memory I have is I took my kids to the park and my boy went down the slide and when he got, and he was three years old at the time, maybe even younger, but he went down the slide and when he got to the bottom of the slide, the first thing he did is he looked up, looked straight over at me and I caught his eyes and I realized what he was doing. He was, he was looking for my affection and we connected on a way that I'd never connected before. Wow. Because I was present, present. in the moment, right? Yeah. Um, I tricked myself into being present in the moment and, and I changed my mind. But more importantly, I realized that what was killing me was coming from within me. Right. Yeah, and I, right. and I made a decision that if I could recreate that feeling that weekend, then I had a chance, right? There mm -hmm. was hope of a better 
way of living for me. Which there had never been before. Which there had never been before. Wow. Never been before. Um, and then I embarked on a journey. So I, I, um, I tried a bit of therapy at first and it didn't work for me. It was a bit too intense. It was a bit too, um, it just didn't really work for me. I did about three sessions and I couldn't quite cope. Um, so I set about, um, I wanted to learn about everything that made me tick. And that's when I found the COA yep. chance about five minute, five months after, which like I say, validated every way that I felt. And then because I was still working at the time, um, I'd become, I'd worked up to, I was transport manager by then within uh, the factory that I'd worked from. So despite everything I've told you, I, I, I went from factory laborer at 18 years old, mm -hmm. second to bottom of in the factory. The only person below me was the cleaner to within that eight year spell, I was now transport manager. So there was only three or three or four people above me within the, within, within the company that I worked for. Yeah. So I, you know, I'd really, I'd progressed in my, in my, in my job, but, uh, I made the decision to, at, for the eight hours a day that I was at work, on the computer at work, I would make sure that I listened to four hours minimum of seminars on trauma, mental health, well-being. Um, I was working at six o'clock in the morning, so at that time I had to be at work at six. So I would get up at um, half four and I would do mindfulness. I would spend time looking within and I would focus on the ways that I felt. And that routine has stayed with me now. It looks slightly different, but... Um, that self-evaluation, that constant looking within myself has completely changed my life. Well, I mean, the man I have set, sat in front of me now is kind of a very different person yeah, to back yeah. then, right? Yeah, completely. So I think, you know, that that's, that's a really good segue because I think, you know, I mean, you have, uh, you know, what many people would consider quite an extreme story. Mm. Um, there are so many elements of it that I, I resonate with. My dad was an alcoholic, you know, I've had food addiction issues myself. And, um, but I think, you know, we can learn so much by what seems like extreme, but so many of us are actually experiencing that, right? Mm. So, so if we like come to where you are today, you're doing a lot of work with schools and colleges, you're doing work in organizations. Obviously the, the whole thing about mental health is huge right now. So, but we know that, you know, a lot of people who are leads in organizations have kind of imposter or fraud syndrome going on. Mm. There's a, you know, a lot of people at work don't feel like they can even show up with any mental health issues, even if that's just like depression or anxiety, let alone anything stronger than that. And we know that people can't put their phones down and whatever. So that's, you know, there's a lot of addiction that maybe people think, well, I'm not an alcoholic or mm. I'm not a drug user or whatever, but as you said it's like the issue is not the the substance or the behavior it's the what it's trying to fix right yeah. so so let's so having said all that what are you noticing in your work now so first of all tell us tell us what kind of form your work takes now and then we'll kind of dig into that a little bit so um in terms in terms of coaching i can when i when i coach people i can draw on my experience of because my life's been about massive change yeah, 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 totally. Okay, so... Um, well, transformation, really. Transformation, right. And what I realize is that to to map any kind of transformation, you need to be able to know exactly where you're at. So, right. So if, if me and you were lost and we had a map, our starting point would be to find where we are on the map. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think sometimes that's what we tend to miss because where we are on the map sometimes is too painful to bear. 
Right, right. It's too hard to really look at. We think we know where we are sometimes, but but it's not always our reality. And so when I work one-on-one with people, that, that for me, that's the, the, the greatest asset that I've got to draw on is that understanding that we need to look within um, mm-hmm. if we want to create massive change in our lives. In terms of mental health in the workplace, which you touched on, and, and people feel like they can't go to work and disclose mental health struggles or how they're feeling in, feeling in their well-being. I think people feel like that because the truth and the reality is that they can't. Right. Because right. Say more. because mental health is becoming big now. So we're all talking about it on a surface level. Right. Everybody's right. talking about mental health and well-being and the slogans are it's okay to talk. It's okay to not to be okay. Um People are even saying, if you want to cry, you should cry. And what we're doing is we're pointing to the people that are in struggles. We're pointing to the vulnerable people. And we're saying that they can break the stigma if they talk about the ways that they feel. Now, when I started doing work within the media for NACOA, um, I was still working in the factory. Mm-hmm. And I, I, went on, I went on BBC Breakfast in the morning and I spoke about my dad and I spoke about the ways that it had made me feel. And I went back to work the next day in a factory with, with predominantly men. And the first man to approach me said, your dad wanted shooting before he had children. And four or five, at least four or five men said to me, why are you attention seeking? Why are you making yourself look stupid? Wow. Yeah. Wow. Now, now I was in a place where I had began to own the ways that I was feeling. So it didn't, mm. it didn't, it didn't affect me. Okay, I, I saw it for what it was and I knew what it was. But when we say that it's okay to talk and you should talk about your feelings and um, you should be open about it, the reality is we're not there yet. Right. And what we do, what I think we do, is we put the onus on the person that's struggling the most when we can't even we can't even disclose some of the, the, the much smaller difficulties that we're struggling with ourselves. Right. So the problem is not one of people talking the problem we have is we're not ready to listen um and wow so when i work with with companies um and businesses i try and take the focus away from teaching people how to talk yep or say what's wrong with them and encourage people to create spaces where we're ready to listen because the real architects of change when it comes to mental health and well-being is not the people that suffer um it's the people that surround them and the support that we create and the spaces that we create for those people that do suffer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's where I think we we, we, we go hugely wrong um, when we talk about mental health and when we talk about well-being. Right. And it makes, makes such sense. I mean, it's almost like that, you know, but it's, it's quite quite um, patronising in a certain kind of way, isn't it? It's yeah, it's a judgement. So, so when you say to somebody, you should talk about how you feel, you say to them, I know what's wrong with you and I know what will fix you. When you're really, really struggling and most people have had struggles in their life, when you think of the time when you were struggling and you think of the times of how you got through that, the best support you probably received in terms of your well-being was when somebody came and met you where you were at, mm-hmm. didn't try and fix you, didn't try and pull you out, but said, I'm not sure where you're at, but I'm gonna sit here a while and I'm gonna sit with you. Right. Um, I always say, if you had a friend who was struggling, who, who went, got taken to hospital, and they rang you up and they said, look, I'm in hospital, I'm in quite a bad way. Um, 
I think I'm going to be all right, but the doctors don't know what's wrong with me. Nobody knows what's wrong with me, but they say I'm going to be ill for a few weeks. If you went to, you wouldn't think I can't go and visit them because I don't know what's wrong with them. You would go grab some grapes and some flowers and you'd right. sit with them for a while, yeah? yeah? Yeah, You'd meet them where they're at and say, I don't know what's wrong with you, but I'm going to support you where you're at. Yeah, yeah. And when we're talking about the ways that people feel, I, I believe that's how you empower people. Um, you go and meet them where they're at so that they can become empowered to, to you know, find their way out of the ways that they feel. And I guess from a, from a, you know, from a life standpoint, makes complete sense because, you know, so often we, well, if you've got fraud syndrome running, mm. then you're naturally going to isolate, right? Mm. So therefore that reaching out and being with someone, witnessing someone's a really powerful thing. But I guess you know, even in the workplace, as a manager or something like that, even taking kind of mental health out, but just like being with people and getting the best out of people, really that's still the same thing, right? Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah, because it becomes empowerment. And rather than dragging someone away, you're, you're meeting them where they're at and then you're gonna, you're gonna help them thrive as opposed to survive. We do lots of things in our lives to cope, I believe. And, yeah. you know, often we will take the easiest route naturally because we because we do it to cope. But the moment it becomes a unhealthy coping mechanism, sometimes it's very difficult to even to even notice. Right, right, right. So when you create that space for somebody, you allow them the opportunity to realize what they're doing using as a coping mechanism. And then you need to give them the strength to drop that coping mechanism because that's the hard bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You need to empower them to drop that coping mechanism. Then you have the opportunity to create that hope. Then you have the opportunity to show them a better way. But before then, you need to you know, help them create that space where they feel like they can let go of what it is that's yeah. weighing them down. Well, any transformation has to start with self-awareness, right? Exactly, exactly. Um, and I, I love everything you said there around that the, the, the creating space bit. Um, because ultimately speaking, you know, I mean, the, the school I come from in terms of coaching and all that kind of stuff is that people are naturally creative and resourceful and whole. Mm. It's just that sometimes that's naturally, sometimes things get in the way of that. Mm. But if you can connect them with that and create hope, and I guess you know the other thing that, that comes back to me, just thinking about what we were saying earlier and what you were saying from your journey is, very often when there's dropping that coping mechanism, dropping that thing that's allowing that person to hold, you know, to, yeah. to hold it together, that's when the real work starts. Yeah, yeah. You know, as you say, letting go of it is is the hard part because that's when the pain or the difficulty or whatever then comes up, mm. but then. It's what you then do with that. But then you're on the journey, yeah. Right. And 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 are you? Uh, there's a good analogy I always use that I, I I feel shows how you can create that moment. And that's quite often like so for me in my life I felt like I was on a bit of a sinking ship, right? Mm -hmm. And my, my mm -hmm. the way that I lived my life was I had a bucket, and I was desperately trying to empty the water, and I was yeah. doing it just enough just to keep the the ship just above water level, literally owning my head above it. Now some people did come along and they tried to help me, but it was more about fixing me and it was more about them, their stuff of trying to fix me. So they would come along, they would see I was off course and they would steer the ship. And they'd steer the ship and they'd get it back on track and then everybody would look and Josh's ship's back on track and he's doing all right again right. and everybody's happy. But through that whole time, my experience never changed. I'm still emptying, I've still got the bucket emptying the water. Yeah, 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 So I, my experience has never changed and I'm, of course I'm gonna go straight back off track because I can't come away from the bucket. 
to really help somebody find change in their life, you need to go along and grab a bucket and say, don't worry, I'm going to empty the water. You steer the ship. Right, yeah? right, 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 right. Because then they then I'm able to go up and steer the ship. I know you, you're emptying the water, so I can go off course, but I'll get back on course. And every time I get back on course, I'm learning. I'm learning from that failure. Yeah, and yep. then that's real empowerment. And that's having somebody that's came in and is supporting me, yeah, yeah, yeah. through my journey, but they're not, they're not doing the steering. No, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. I think that's, I love that analogy actually. Because mm. I mean, you know, from, a, from you know, just looking at it from a coaching point of view, people own solutions that they've come up with exactly. themselves, right? Far better than if someone comes along and says, do this, do that, mm. as it were. Um, when I know when you work with people uh, individually and in organisations, it's not just about kind of you know the the um, mental health stuff and all that. It's also about helping people. I mean, ultimately, it's about helping people thrive, right? Yeah. So tell us a little bit more about kind of that transition of you. You said you start off in that place of like really getting clear on where you're really at, yeah, as it were. Um, what have you kind of found works for kind of taking people from that place to a place where they really are thriving in life, in work, you know. Yeah. Because uh, that's what I see with you. Yeah, yeah. And uh, that's about um, about resilience. And, mm. and, and a lot of places are talking about the need for resilience. And um, again, it's something else that everybody's talking about. So that, that you hear lots of different things. And I always talk a lot about what resilience is not. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. And so it's not burying the ways that you feel it's not pretending things aren't happening um it's accepting them Mm. and what i've done if you take the learnings of my life and bring it into what it means as resilience what happened to me when i was younger had the impact on me because of the way that i reacted to it Mm -hmm. right right right. okay so um if you know i did lots of bad things based on like being loyal to the wrong person Mm -hmm. um wanting to be loved and all that kind of stuff yeah, yeah. that loyalty and that need to look lo- to look to be loved hasn't gone but i use it in a different way now mm. so re- resilience is not is nothing to do with not experiencing stress or adversity it's about reframing the way that you react to it right changing your relationship changing to your relationship to it. So, so stress is good right because it, it puts us in a place where we need to act mm. right Stress only becomes a bad thing when it becomes toxic stress. Toxic stress, and I believe it becomes that when you deny it and try to pretend right. that it's not happening. Right. So you take that stress, you accept the way that it's making you feel, and then you reframe it, and then you can use it, and all of a sudden it becomes an asset. Mm. And you're you're that strong emotion that you're feeling that's beating you up. You're now using that, and you're acting on it, and you're using it as as, as your power. Yeah. So, I mean, just to really ground that, can you give us an example of what that might look like in terms of, you know, because I think a lot of people out there know what stress is, but in terms of like how you could reframe it and turn it into something productive. So, you want a, a specific example in the workplace, for example. For example, yeah. So, so if you feel like. Um, somebody in a position of more authority is is uh, micromanaging you, for example. Yeah. yeah. So I would say that that's your trigger, right? Yeah. So that's the thing that's making you feel, you're feeling angry and you're feeling um, like you're being micromanaged, right? Yeah, yeah. So you notice what happening, you, you notice the trigger. Mm-hmm. 
then you then you notice the ways that it's making you feel and you accept the initial way that it's making you feel okay yeah so you don't pretend it's not making you feel that so it's making you feel angry it's making you feel annoyed and it's making you feel like you don't want to work with that person right mm -hmm. what what's a very simple way of just is it just a case of just going okay i know i'm feeling stressed and angry and that kind of stuff how do you do yeah, that yeah because because I, I feel like the real fight is when you, so you you say, I'm feeling stressed now. The fight begins when you say, I don't want to feel stressed. I shouldn't be feeling this. Oh, I need to stop feeling yeah, stressed. Yeah, yeah, I need I to agree. stop feeling stressed. So you, ex you uh, for me, accepting it is taking two minutes to step aside from it. And instead of being, I don't want to feel stressed. I can't feel stressed. I shouldn't be feeling stressed. You literally have a mindset shift where you say, okay, look, I'm feeling stressed now. Yeah, I feel yeah, I, yeah. So you stepped aside from it. I do the same with anxiety, by the way. Um, I still get anxiety and I and I beat it by how I live in spite of it. And so when it comes on me, instead mm. of, oh, I'm anxious and I don't want to feel like this, you shouldn't be feeling like this, Josh, this, this is not the way you should be feeling, I can say, oh, okay, I feel anxious. And then you get curious about it. So whether it's stress or anxiety, just have a two-second check of the way it's making you feel physically mm -hmm. because you're allowing yourself to be curious. So when I'm when I'm stressed, my shoulders are tense. My shoulders come up by my ears. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You, I can th feel my heartbeat in my head sometimes. Yeah, yeah, yeah When yeah. I'm stressed. And so you take a, a few minutes to notice that. You can start by altering that straight away. By the way, drop my shoulders, change my body language. Right. So now I'm curious about it. Right. Mm -hmm. it, it's not in control of me. I'm not trying to run away from it. I'm in it. Right. Yep. So then once you're in it like that, that's when you have then have the op you, you know where you're at. You found your place on the map. Right. Yeah. Yep. You, you you know what you're feeling, you know how it's making you feel, and all of a sudden it's not in control of you, it's not something you're running from, it's something right. that's happened and that you're curious about. Right. Now you're in the, the one with the power, right? So you're in control. Yeah, you're at a place of choice, right? Yeah, so so now you've you've spent, literally, this is all within 30 seconds a minute, but now you're in a place where you're in control, you know how it's making you feel, and you start to learn your normal reactions. Now your normal reactions might be to get angry because anger by the way is a re is a reaction to the to the emotion normally yeah yeah rather than the primary emotion itself absolutely right yeah and so we've started now right at the prime distinction. we've we we've started at the primary emotion and now we realize that anger is actually the second emotion and because we're in control we can start to figure out in a much calm calmer place where we go. So rather than reacting with anger, we can now reframe it. And so we say, if it's a boss that we feel like is micromanaging us, we can say, what 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 can we do to change the ways that I feel? Well, firstly, I can calm down, which I've done. I've become curious about the ways that I feel, so I'm in control of that. Mm -hmm. Now I might be able to go and have a calm conversation with them for a start. Right, yeah. right, 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 right. Rather than the normal, pretend it's not happening, keep running from it, get more and more angry, and before you know it, you've blown up about something that seems ridiculously small, but actually it's come from an accumulation of you trying to be resilient, but it's false resilience. It's pushing yeah, it down. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. pushing it down, yeah, and pretending it's not happening. Yeah, it's bracing it. Exactly. And now you're in the moment and you've dealt with it. And it's not going to work every time. No, absolutely. Yeah. It's practice. Right. Yeah, but it's it's about practice, and and sometimes some of these things, you know, uh, I say it's the same with mindfulness. People feel like they don't work because they try it once or twice, and then they say it doesn't work for me. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Sometimes it's about a little bit of consistency and sticking with it, um, and allowing ourselves to be in them vulnerable and vulnerable situations and a little bit out of our comfort zone. Um, but like any muscle, when it gets to a bit of pain, that's when it's going to grow. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it's the same.
to say. No, absolutely right. Absolutely right. I love that. One of the things that's really apparent about you, just off the bat, and I think anyone who's listening to this will get that, there's so much power in your level of authenticity. Mm. So, and authenticity is another one of those big things in business right now, you mm. know, purpose and authenticity and all that kind of thing. And, you know, authenticity is, is of course, the opposite of like that fraud, imposter syndrome we've been talking about. So what have you kind of, in your work, what have you kind of seen around that and how have you kind of helped people to be more authentic? Authenticity, I mean, like for me, I had to rebuild from nowhere. So I just dared to be my most authentic self, right? But again, I think acceptance comes into this quite a lot because my most authentic self is somebody who still needs to put on a little bit of a suit of armor when I go out and face the world. Right. Um, right. So it's about having a bit of in inclusion with that. I don't like the word balance. I like to, I, yeah, I prefer yeah. inclusion. Yeah, I like integration myself. Yeah, because I don't think life is balanced. <laughs> no, it's not, definitely. Um, no, but so, so, you know, understanding that I put on a little bit of a suit of armor in the way that I do my hair and what I put on in the morning when I'm going out into the world, that's just understanding my vulnerability and knowing that I need a little bit of that to go out in the world. And so it's about, it's about accepting, flaws is probably the wrong word, but just accepting ourselves for where we're at. Yeah. Because the moment you accept your vulnerabilities, then, then they actually become strengths. Right. Because you own them, you own them. And so much of being authentic is just really about owning your reality but again it takes practice yeah yeah, yeah absolutely self-work um well and i think also what what you're saying is it's about authenticity is really starting off with being authentic with yourself first right absolutely um because i think a lot of people when they think about authenticity it's like well you know i'm being honest about my emotions it's like no you're acting out yes as it were. yeah yeah so it's actually what you're saying is being being really real around what your needs are as mm. well as anything it's not just about going out and being 100 percent vulnerable it's as you say owning reality i really love that distinction yeah yeah it's about owning your reality and that's why you know working with a coach i believe can be huge for that by the way because um, a coach can create that space for you, yeah, where mm. you're where you're with somebody else and where you can start to practice being your most authentic self, yeah, yeah. Um, because the moment you throw something out there, an emotion or a feeling or or a thought that you've never thrown out there that you've kept secret all your life, uh, it can be very vulnerable. And when you get to do it one on one with somebody that you trust and that you feel that you've got um, that relationship with, and you're in that space, then you get to practice it. Yeah, yeah. And what you tend to realize is what I've realized myself is sometimes when I throw out my little secrets that I've kept secret all my life, they barely even get noticed because <laughs> right. because they only hold so much power because I've kept them secret. Right, I totally get that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, so uh, Yeah, I get that. One yeah. of my one of my teachers, a woman called Sonia Choquette, who was on our second podcast this year actually, always said exact the exact same thing about fear. Yeah. You know, fear is only 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 has power while it's un while we let it go underground. The moment we name it, we claim it. Yeah, and I think it's so true of so many of these kind of quote unquote negative emotions, mm. and we lay even just labeling them as negative is a kind of a bit of fallacy, isn't it? Absolutely, so. I, I, and I always say there's you know I actually say there's no such thing as positive and negative emotions. No, there's emotions, emotion, you know, right? yeah, it's yeah. just emotion, right? Absolutely. Uh, so uh, yeah, when you start to get comfortable with 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 the 
quote unquote negative emotions, actually they stop being negative and you realise that there's a need for them. Yeah, 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 yeah. It always reminds me of that, what was that, that Pixar film, Inside Out. Yeah. Which I think is just like the best explanation I mean, yeah. for, for kids, but for any human being of, you know, in that film, I think it was joy, you know, it was trying to, joy was trying to be there all the time and was trying to push out sadness. But yeah. actually every, every emotion plays a, a real role, right? Yeah. It's all about healing at the end of the day. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, absolutely amazing. Um, there's so much richness in this conversation. I'm just kind of curious where, where, where are you heading next now in, in your journey and what, what's kind of coming up for you? There's, there's lots, there's lots for me to be excited about at the moment that, you know, the projects that I'm working on and really it's just, I want to, I want to help as many people as I can. Yeah, yeah. That's the truth. And you know, when I, when I started really looking at my purpose, well, I looked at the, the long history of trauma and addiction in my family. And I always use the example that there's no pictures of my dad on the wall in my house because it's too traumatic. My children don't really know who my dad was. Yeah. You know, when, when I'm gone, eventually, uh, I want my grandchildren and my great-grandchildren to have a picture of me on the wall. Uh, and, you know, and my kids say that I was a good man, mm. you know, and mm. that I would be remembered for somebody who took everything that's happened to me. Um, took everything that I've been through and tried to influence the world in a positive way. And, I, that, you know, that really is my core purpose. Um, Get that. And I'm, I'm happy for however that manifests and however that comes <laughs> about, you know. Um, Love that. But just keep moving forward with what I'm doing and um, trying to continue to be who I really am. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And I, I know you've got a, a lot of um, potentially really exciting things coming up. So Mavericks, watch this space because you'll be seeing Mr. Josh Connolly more and more as time <laughs> goes on. Um, Josh, just to round things off and bring bring things to a close, two, two final questions. Uh, penultimate question. If there was one message that you could leave people with who are listening to this podcast, what would that message be? However you feel, it's validated uh, and you're allowed to feel it. Validation for the ways that I felt was what was missing all my life. Life. Mm. Um, nobody ever validated the ways that I felt. My reaction to the ways that I felt caused a lot of pain, caused a lot of harm, and caused a lot of people to gain um, an idea of who I was. And it was based on behaviors for feelings that were never validated. Once you validate the ways you feel and separate your reaction to them, you can create the new reaction for them. So my message is always that validation is key. Validation to the ways that you feel is vital um, and probably the best starting point. Love that. Love that. Last question, Josh. If people want to find out more about you, where can they find you? So uh, my website is um, just joshconnolly.co.uk. Uh, um, I've got a YouTube channel, which you can find if you search Josh Connolly. And then I'm josh underscore F. FW on Instagram and Twitter and I'm very active across I all say, my social like media. You're like the king of social aren't you? Uh, yeah, I love I love social media it's a, it's a great platform to share the ways that I feel and that's what I do you know I, I, I on my social media I present my most authentic self to the world and I think that's what resonates most with people. Yeah, absolutely I think you know just I've, I've seen the growth of your social presence and, all that, mm. and it's just so to be honest, it's so refreshing because mm. there's so much stuff on on social these days, especially on like Instagram these days around influencers and you know product placement and all that kind of stuff. And frankly, just your your Instagram stories and your videos are just a breath of fresh air because it's mm. so real. Yeah. Um. So 
you know, I just really, you know, I'm I'm just grateful that you know that you're in this world, and there are you know there are people like you. But for for a, a, a man who is in his early thirties, mm. you inspire me to a very high degree. So, Good, thank you. No, you're very welcome. Thank you for being on the show with us today. And, it's been a pleasure. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you as well, Josh. This was Mavericks Radio, and thanks to Josh Connolly for being my guest today, for sharing his courage, his honesty, and his deep personal wisdom. Keep listening out for our next episode, subscribe, and please do give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other people to find us. And with that, see you next time, and bye for now.